It's two days after the 2016 election cycle, and Eric Greitens just finished meeting with Senate Republicans. Never before in Missouri's history has a GOP chief executive come into office with so many Republican lawmakers in the General Assembly. Needless to say, the then-governor-elect was excited about potentially accomplishing a lot with the legislature. We're very excited. Uh, we think that, you know, the people of Missouri voted to take this state in a new and a better direction. And I'm excited to work with the legislature to make that happen. A year later, things haven't gone exactly as Greitens expected. Sure, the legislature did end up passing some major bills, but a lot of other things got stymied along the way, prompting the governor to say this at the conclusion of the legislative session. If you say, what's the grade that I'd give the, the legislature? Um, you know, frankly, sometimes it looked like third grade. Uh, you, know, you know, sometimes you had, you had career politicians who instead of actually fighting for the people of Missouri and fighting for jobs, they were singing Kumbaya. Legislators that Greitens derided say they're not entirely to blame for the situation. They point to the governor's aggressive posture when it came to raising legislative pay and his defensiveness about revealing the donors of a politically active nonprofit touting his agenda. One of the governor's loudest detractors, Republican Senator Ryan Sylvie of Kansas City, says Greitens failed to embrace the value of cultivating relationships. I was frequently very critical of Governor Nixon about this. You can't govern by soundbite. Governing is much harder than, than a bumper sticker. There's some evidence that the schism between Greitens and the legislature may have grown larger in the interim. Some Democrats raised alarm about how the governor and his staff use an app that automatically makes text messages disappear. And members of both political parties were infuriated that Greitens engineered the ouster of Commissioner of Education Margie Van Dieven. So to break down these growing pains, we'll talk to State Senator Gary Romine on the latest edition of Politically Speaking. We'll also talk to the Farmington Republican about how these tensions could affect the 2018 legislative session. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors, and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to Politically Speaking, the only show about Missouri politics featuring a co-host who does not have an improvised line describing his <laughs> show today because he's tired. I am that co-host, Jason Rosenbaum, the interim politics editor for St. Louis Public Radio. I'll try better next time to think of uh, that running gag. Joining me in studio today is... Is Joe Manis. He's also tired, but it's from working, so it's all right. And joining us all the way from beautiful Farmington, Missouri, we have as our special guest today... Good morning. Gary Romines, Senator for the 3rd Senatorial District. We're, we're thrilled to have you on today. Um, this might be a little known fact, but our we do actually reach into your neck of the woods because I think we go down yes. to Rolla, and we also go down to southern and uh, northeast Missouri yes. and southern Missouri. Yeah, I hate to brag, but because of recent acquisitions, uh, St. Louis Public Radio has by far the largest reach of any of the uh, public radio stations in the state. Um, we basically go from Quincy to Lebanon. So uh, Mr. Uh, Senator Romine is right in the thick of it. Also, I have a lot of relatives on my husband's side who live in Farmington. So 
Well, my oldest son, Daniel, he's always been a big fan. He lives in Springfield now, so he listens to you online. So, oh, yeah, we, we keep up from time to time. And uh, before we get into your, your bi- biography, just tell our listeners which counties your, your district encompasses. Uh, my district starts as far south as Reynolds County, Iron County, Washington County, St. Francis County, St. Genevieve County, and then we have the southern third of Jefferson County. And as I was mentioning in the green room, I, I had a lot of fun this summer visiting Reynolds and Iron County for a vacation. I went to Johnson Shut-Ins. I went to Elephant Rock State Park. Also went to Pilot Knob Civil War Battlefield. It, it is. It, it seems like your district has a lot of beautiful natural scenery in it. We are becoming known as the parkland uh, for Missouri. We, we have some beautiful state parks there, and we're looking forward to uh, making sure that that tradition continues. Uh, obviously, one of the things we want to talk about, and this is probably not a subject for today, but we want to make sure that we have plenty of funds to, to maintain the state parks that we have, and that'll be a topic uh, we'll be talking about later on as Oh, well. yeah. Actually, we probably work in, will work into that. Now, why don't you give our listeners, since you're the first-time guest, we always a little bit about where you're from, what you do, just a little bit of a background. Well, I'm from Farmington, Missouri, originally Popper Bluff, Missouri, so I'm not too far from my parents who still live there. Uh, been in the rental business for uh, 35 years. Uh, we have our own company. We started, uh, we'll have our 30th anniversary of uh, February of 2018. So we've been in business for 30 years uh, with nine stores from Festus, Missouri, down to Kennett, Missouri. Uh, we provide home furnishings uh, on a rental basis and a, a retail basis. Uh, been in education my first four years out of college. I taught two years in Branson, Missouri, and two years in Farmington. That's how I ended up there. Met my wife. Uh, we married, and we have five children, 12 grandchildren, and just loving life. Well, that's great. So your first entry into electoral politics was actually in 2004, when you ran for a state house seat against the infamous Steve Tilley. And I, I, I say infamous tongue-in-cheek because he actually has been on our show three times. He's one of the best guests we've ever had. Um, you know, we, why did you decide to get involved in electoral politics then and, and also in 2012? Because as we were talking about before, you, you have a business, you have a, a pretty large family. It's not always an easy thing for somebody to get up and run for state legislative office. So what, what, what got you interested in this uh, arena in the first place? For almost 30 years, I've served as the legislative liaison for the Missouri rental dealers going to Jeff City on their behalf. And then for almost 20 years, went to Washington, D.C. Uh, and having conversation with the Federal Trade Commission as well as others on uh, trying to get a bill on the federal level to recognize the rent-owned industry uh, as an independent industry. Uh, we got through the uh, the tax process, and so they learned how to tax us, uh, uh, which was pretty easy, I guess, to get done. But I, I've been involved from the business side of the desk for, for almost 30 years uh, in the legislative process. Uh, once the business was established, uh, it was time to give back to the community, to give back some of the things that I'd learned being involved as a business owner. And so I was looking for an opportunity. Uh, the seat was opening up, and so I ran for the, the state house seat. And we've had a lot of fun with the fact that I, I lost that race to uh, uh, Speaker Tilly. And, but uh, once the primary was over, I wanted to help him finish that election and then ended up uh, serving in the, the Capitol as uh, chief of staff to Senator Engler for a couple of years and Senator Alter for a year. And uh, as time went on, Engler was interested in running for the House uh, at the same time that the Senate seat would be open. Uh, so it just made sense that my experience was in the Senate 
to run for the Senate and let him have the, have the opportunity to run in the House again. It, it all worked out for both of you, I would say, because you won your race in 2012. It was actually a pretty close race. You beat uh, now former State Representative Joe Fowler by, I think, four percentage points. Your election this time around was a little bit easier. You had a Green Party candidate as your opponent. Yes, and we, we didn't take anything lightly or for granted. We still wanted to run our campaign, but we had a very successful bid on the second time around, yes. Green Party is still trying to make headway in uh, southern Missouri. But uh, we want to launch straight into the issues because there's a lot to talk about both now and for the 2018 session. You have been one of the most outspoken critics of the decision to oust uh, now former Commissioner of Education Margie Van Dieven. You've been very critical of Governor Eric Greitens for engineering this move. Um, I want you to tell our listeners why you disapproved of this situation so much, first well, of all. First of all, there was no foundation or no reason for the termination. Uh, she's had a very successful tenure in her short amount of time being there. Some of the numbers that they're trying to justify their comments that they're backtracking or trying to shore up their rationale for their decision is data from a 2015 analysis. She'd only been in the office or served in the position for just a few months. So those statistics are not a result of her tenure or time served. Uh, being the chairman of the Senate Education Committee, I've had opportunity to work with her almost on a daily basis, have seen how she's worked hard to get us through the Common Core issue, was very divisive in the state. It was a major issue, particularly in the rural communities. But we ended up with the Missouri standards, and I, I think it was through her leadership and the work that she did to bring all the parties together, which is why she has a success in the support of the teachers, administrators, school boards all across the state are scratching their head wondering why an individual that has shown this kind of success would, want, would need to be removed. Uh, on top of that, uh, we are poised to uh, take MSET 6 into uh, fruition. Uh, we do not need the disruption of a new commissioner coming in trying to get through that process. Uh, personally, we were able to carry the, uh, the uh, career tech ed certification process. That's in the, in, in the middle of getting instituted. She was very instrumental in getting that process going. She's been very successful from a practical standpoint on what our education, to take care of our kids' needs, make education relevant to our employment needs in the state. She was doing those jobs to make those successful. And now, all of a sudden, her tenure has been abruptly ended. Now, you're a Republican. The governor is Republican. So presumably, at least you have some common people who you talk to. Do you have any sense, of, from your standpoint, was this more political than, I mean, was it based more on politics than on her performance? I'm just interested in your take on what may have happened and what you're hearing from your Senate colleagues about this. The, the biggest frustration my Senate colleagues and I have is the lack of communication with this governor. Uh, I, I, I will speak candidly. It, 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 as I spoke with the commissioner towards the end of last session, uh, I asked the question point blank. I didn't. I was surprised at the answer, but I asked her, how many times have you visited with the governor about what he thinks the agenda for Missouri education should be? And her response was zero. Was, had she tried and he didn't meet with her or what? That is correct. She, obviously, in the past, uh, her and I have talked uh, under Nixon administration. We knew some of the issues that were important, but in trying to figure out, as chairman of Senate Education, her as commissioner, 
what's the governor's position on these issues? And we did not have the communication from the governor to really formulate a good plan. And that's what's frustrating. It's not just education, but the governor has failed to communicate with the Senate. The Senate is what I can speak to, uh, to myself or most of our colleagues, about what he thinks the agenda should be. Why do you think he's not communicating? I wish I knew. It's very frustrating. If we could get past that hurdle, uh, I think there's a lot of good things we can do for the state. But as long as he's doing sound bites out there from the bully pulpit and putting us on the spot, it's going to be hard to get a cooperative effort of a job done. There's been some theory that the reason that the governor wanted Ben even replaced is because he's been publicly supportive of expanding charter schools and uh, aiding private schools with with state resources. Now, many have pointed out the Commissioner of Education can't just do both of those things by fiat. The legislature would have to act. But do you think that's one of the reasons, A, the governor engineered this move, and B, why so many administrators and teachers are so alarmed by Van Dieven leaving? I think the charter school issue is one of the reasons. Uh, uh, My concern is that if we would have had a conversation with at least someone from the governor's office, Uh, The commissioner and I had spoken in detail about putting together a task force. We have charter schools in Missouri, but the problem with our current charter school system is that they're failing at an extremely higher rate than our other public schools, and they need to be fixed. They need to be dealt with. There needs to be a process to shut those down or at least to modify them so that they are effective and efficient. But the frustrating part is Again, we were in the process of having that conversation. If the governor would have been involved, if he really wanted to fix education, he would have worked with the commissioner and myself in putting that task force together to see what we needed to do to fix current charter system. So if there is a need, and again, if there is a need to expand, we could do that. Now, what is, do you think your view is fairly common among the Senate or among outstate lawmakers? I'm just interested if you feel like you have a lot of support for your view on this. I I do have a lot of support. Uh, There's several of my colleagues that have uh, supported me in this concern. Uh, But I think this is one of those traditional urban versus rural issues more than it is a Republican versus Democrat issue. There's a different need for education in the city than there is for the rural areas. And until we realize that and until we start not trying to use a one-size-fits-all, We're going to continue to struggle to really meet the education needs of the state. So you have told numerous news outlets that you plan to filibuster the nominees to the Board of Education. For our listeners, the governor made all the appointments in the interim. They still need to be confirmed by the Senate. Um, I'd like you to elaborate on that. And also, if there is enough angst among your Senate colleagues, will a filibuster even be necessary if they could just vote them down on on an up or down vote? Well, I've had conversations with several of my colleagues, and and there is a tremendous number that are extremely concerned about the process in which the governor went about stacking this board. When you have 10 attempts until you get the five to vote the way you want them to vote, that is a blatant example of of the politics being played of its worst kind. We have a governor that ran on a platform of not having politics as usual. But that's what we've seen and how he's handled this board. So much so that one of the board members were not, was not sworn in until minutes before the vote was to be taken. Anyone that's willing to make a vote of this magnitude, uninformed, uneducated, 
does not deserve to be on the State Board of Education. Now, let's continue, sir. And for that purpose and for that reason, I feel like I have a duty and responsibility. They didn't go through the confirmation process. They're not qualified to serve on the board, and they've made taken a vote that indicates that they are going to be more of a puppet of the governor than an independent voice for the State Board of Education. Now, have you heard talk of any particular uh, people who he might be uh, looking at to have named to replace Van Dieven? I have not, other than what I've heard in the media uh, of the gentleman from uh, uh, Georgia that's been talked about. But other than that, that's the only name that uh, I've heard. And, I- and from what you've said before, the governor hasn't talked to you. Correct. Why has there been more outrage over the governor stacking a board to oust Van Dieven, but less outrage of the governor stacking the Missouri Veterans Commission to oust Larry Kay? Because that's about to happen, and I've, I've gotten a sense that both parties are fine with that. Uh, no. I, matter of fact, I had a phone conversation on my way up this morning that there's outrage being uh, starting to build concerning that particular issue as well. Uh, we also have uh, my, some of my colleagues that are very upset about how the, uh, the, the, the tax credit board was stacked, and the governor took the low-income housing tax credit actually away from rural Missouri. It's, it's infuriating my rural colleagues. So now it's, it, education is taking the forefront, but we have two other boards right now that are getting the same kind of ire as the State Board of Education. Yeah, I covered the governor's news conference on Monday about the Veterans Commission. Um, you know, he was very clear that he wants, you know, he's going to ha- with these new board members and how he wants them to vote. Um, do you think, and, and they also need Senate confirmation. Do you think there's going to be, A, a filibuster on that? B, um, I mean, is there something philosophically about his approach that has really got uh, senators of his own party upset? Uh, there is a philosophical concern and there's a constitutional concern, and that is the reason why I dropped the bill I did yesterday that will try to correct and clarify the process which needs to take place. A majority of the board members making a significant vote need to be confirmed by the Senate is one of the things that we want to accomplish. The other thing we want to accomplish with the bill is that if a governor appoints someone to a committee, that he has to send the, the letter to the Senate which locks them in, and then he cannot remove them from that committee if they fail the vote the way he wants them to. That way, there, there's a good check and balance. At least we know that that individual that has been appointed to that position is protected, that they can make up their own mind about an issue based upon the facts that they perceive. So I'm going to play a clip now from Eddie Justice. He's one of the appointees and nominees to the, the Board of Education. This is in direct response to a question about his nomination getting filibustered by you and other senators. When I was appointed by the governor, I made a commitment to make decisions that were in the best interest of Missouri students. If I make decisions based on my Senate confirmation and not at and not according to what's in the best interest of Missouri students, then I've violated my own commitment and I don't deserve to be affirmed anyway. What, what's your response to Mr. Justice right there? My response to that is that the, the blatant effort to remove members almost on a weekly basis until a group of five were going to vote the way the governor wanted them to vote shows that they were being puppets of the governor. If you were not going to vote Van Dieven out, you were not going to get to serve on the State Board of Education. It's very obvious. I mean, one of the appointees was just minutes before uh, the vote was to take place. 
Now, um, you mentioned the bill that you've pre-filed. Um, do you have any sense on how much support you have? And in this case, might the Democratic minority actually help you as far as getting enough votes to get that bill through the Senate? I, I, I believe we will have bipartisan support on the bill. Uh, I've had a lot of encouragement. Uh, we initially started with myself and two other sponsors uh, on the bill. I've had phone calls from a couple others that are re- prepared to sign on to the bill. Uh, we don't necessarily need their signatures, but the more signatures we can have on there, uh, the better. But we, we have a major outcry from the body as a whole that we have to protect the integrity of the Senate as part of the process on these boards and commissions, and the confirmation process needs to be a critical part of that. So I want to segue into a larger discussion about the governor's relationship with the legislature, and I'm going to play a clip with that was on the governor's YouTube page, which is why there's some music involved. This is him talking right after session, right before a special session aimed at uh, changing basically the Public Service Commission regulations as a way to ignite economic development. I actually wrote a story about the whole proposal at the time and actually a follow up, but we'll get into that. And we'll get into a little bit more, but you were not an opponent of economic development in Southeast Missouri. You were an opponent of another part of a bill that would have made it easier for a company like Ameren to raise their electricity rates to get infrastructure done. And this is how the governor phrased this entire situation, attacking both you and Senator, Senator Doug Leibel of Poplar Bluff. Was we had some career politicians who decided that they wanted to put their personal, pitiful, petty, political privileges ahead of jobs for the people. They figured they'd run out the clock and they'd go on their vacations. They figured they, they'd run out the clock and that we would forget. Well, you know what? They figured wrong. I want to do a spoiler alert for our listeners. After the governor made that statement and ran attack ads, I think, against both you and Senator Leibla, um, the special session happened and the legislature ended up passing the bill that both you and Senator Leibla preferred. So I want to ask more generally, when the governor does something like that, what was your reaction? Yeah, and I want to add to this um, because I wrote a story right before you went in session because I interviewed Libla, and there was robocalls that the governor's uh, uh, campaign operation had been running against the senator. And these are all Republicans here, folks. So go ahead. Well, it was rather humorous in that when I showed up in my office after the rally, my front door of my office was papered with all these uh, clips of being anti-development uh, for economic development, particularly the steel mill, which couldn't be farther from the truth. Is anybody that's known me over the last five years, uh, I've been annually challenging Ameren to prove the need for the utility uh, process, the PSC process for, for raising rates. And every year they seem to want to take a hostage. Uh, for a while there it was Naranda. Then they, they, they realized that I was taking a central position on the issue, so they found Doe Run as a company and took them as hostage uh, to leverage them to try to get the vote done. And then the third attempt was the steel mill and, uh, and the Naranda plant, again, in, in the Sykeson area. The governor was uninformed. He was not prepared. He was not educated on the issue. My contention was we will not let a bad piece of legislation pass to allow something good happen. 
take the AMR language off, and we will support the, the steel mill and the Naranda plant 100%. And we worked very hard to get that done. We were attacked by a dark money campaign by the governor. Uh, uh, matter of fact, uh, the local press attacked Senator Leibler more than myself because that was his district, which was very unfair. Uh, he was trying to do the right thing. He wanted to support economic development. But again, Ameren was using that as a hostage to try to get something out of it, and we were not going to let that happen. I was glad the special session was called, but I knew we had an additional fight to take on because Ameren was trying to attach themselves again. But again, we stood strong. We were able to present our arguments, and in the end, we won out and proved that we were definitely in, in support of economic development. We were just not going to let Ameren get their way and use them as a bully, as deep pockets, as, as uh, hostage takers is the best way I can put it. Yeah, um, just so our listeners know, I've written a lot about Naranda the last five or six years. Um, this, they were, this is an aluminum smelting operation, they were long the hugest, biggest employer in southeast Missouri. They're pretty much gone. Right. Um, this bill was aimed at perhaps encouraging some sort of resurrection. Also, there was talk of a steel plant. I had interviewed people at the time and also about a month or so later, and there wasn't much happening. What's your sense of what's happening or not as far as the economic development that the special session was aimed at encouraging? The frustrating and disheartening part of this is we're still without a steel mill in the Sykeson area. We're still without Naranda plant being revised. All the extra work, the extra session, special session, I do not believe that there was enough homework done to see if it was really an option. It was Ameren's agenda being pushed forward, and so therefore the hopes of those folks in that area that something might happen was raised to a high level, and I'm afraid they're about to be disappointed. I hope not. I hope there's still a chance for the steel mill to go in, but I understand the steel mill is open in Sedalia. It's quietly taking place, and what has happened to the opportunity in Saxton? We do not know. We're not getting answers on that. And it's very, very frustrating that we spend a lot of political capital on this issue, and it, it's, it's, it's been for naught. So uh, more generally, we've talked about the Board of Education situation. We talked about the, the interim special session. It seems like the governor has engendered some ill will, especially in the Senate, with a cavalcade of things. What is going to be the posture, especially in the Senate, going into 2018 with this as a backdrop? Unless there's some communication, and communication is the key to any success, uh, we're going to have some uh, struggles with this governor. There, there's some uh, serious angst in, the, in, in that there's been personal attacks against Senator Schaaf, Senator Leibler, myself. There's been uh, underhanded uh, activities with the State Board of Education, which there were several senators that feel like she was doing an extremely good job. And so, therefore, uh, we lost a friend and an ally in education, and, and the governor did it without really any participation or involvement of the Senate that they're supposed to be part of the confirmation process. He has built a wall that's going to make it very hard for the Senate, from my opinion, to be able to work with him on, on going forward. Now, during the last session, 
one of the more controversial bills was one that you sponsored. I'm shifting gears just a little bit. It's famously known There as was no segue. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, we got to talk about it. SB 43. Matt, you and I had talked about this at the time on the phone several times. Um, SB 43 was aimed at making it more difficult um, to for an employee to uh, alleged discrimination in court, correct? That they needed to have a slight higher standard correct. than the perception that there had been before. The Missouri Chamber of Commerce and Fairness supported the bill. Um, you came under fire a lot because your business has been the subject of a discrimination lawsuit, although you had made clear that the lawsuit would not be affected by the spell. The governor did sign it. There was controversy on both sides. Uh, before we get into some of the issues within the bill, how do you see the, the climate now, and do you see um, changes that might be made going forward, or do you think the bill's pretty, now it's a law, is okay as is? I think the bill is solid. I believe we worked very hard to come up with a product that met the needs of protecting those from discrimination. I, I do not believe discrimination of any type is acceptable. It doesn't matter whether you're a part of a class or not. Uh, discrimination is wrong. But I think with contributing factor being the standard for so long, all you had to be was a member of that protected class to be able to file a discrimination suit. That set the threshold so low that I, the frivolous lawsuits were causing the true discrimination cases to get lost in the weeds. And I truly believe that. I think we have to have a standard that is true and balanced so that the employer can conduct business as they need to, but employees can pre be protected as well as they need to be protected. As, as Joe alluded to, you came under pretty intense attack, both by Democrats and some uh, interest groups that were opposed to it. And they brought up the fact that, again, as Joe mentioned, your business has been subject to a discrimination lawsuit, even though this particular bill would not affect that. Why do you think that there was so much opposition to this bill before we get into some specific arguments from the Democrats? I, it's a major change. And I understand that uh, that some of those special groups want to make sure that uh, the folks that they represent are as protected as much as possible. But and I was willing to have those conversations. Uh, Mr. Chapel was in the office at a time. We did have the stakeholders. I, I met with several of the Democratic parties. I met with uh, Mr. Chapel. We discussed the bill. We had our group. You know, it was after three o'clock in the morning. I mean, we spent a lot of time. This was not a casual effort to get a bill pushed forward. And I was not bashful or shy or afraid to take the time to talk to the counterparts about the various components of the bill. To have a good bill, you have to hear all sides and you have to make sure you fully vet it. And I felt like we did that. This is uh, actually a, a clip from State Representative Deb Lavender of Kirkwood. A Democrat. A, a Democrat. And this was one of the main arguments that opponents of this put forward? Well, I think it's a significant priority of the Democrats. We do fight for the working family. We do fight for what we feel is right. We've had a lot of racial issues in Missouri, Ferguson, the University of Missouri. So there are racial issues that happen in our state right now. And we just feel this is very targeted towards those civil rights gains that we have made over decades of time and that this would take us back to a place we just don't think is appropriate in our state. So you probably have heard that argument before and you kind of alluded to the fact that you do not support discrimination of any kind, which it goes without saying. But what do you make of the argument that 
now it's much more difficult for somebody who feels like they were discriminated because of their race, because of their gender, because of their religion, to get restitution in court because your bill passed. The bill was intended to make sure that those protected classes were the reason that they were terminated or disciplined. It's not just termination, it's disciplinary action as well. Uh, that being said, that protects the employee as much as it does the employer. It, we're actually filing cases that it was intended to be filed for. If you were discriminated because you were black, if you were discrim discriminated against because you were over 65, you have a reason to sue that employer. And we want to make sure the integrity of that process is there. And that's, that's what I see as this bill is accomplished. It's created that balance so that we're actually dealing with true issues and not issues that are retaliation against an employer. Uh, my employee was black when I hired him. He was black the six years he worked for me. He was black when I terminated him. That had nothing to do with the termination, but I'm being uh, sued now because of racial discrimination. That's the unfair balance. We had cause for termination. The Missouri Commission on Human Rights determined there was no merit to the case. They dismissed the case. So this is where the frustration came in. This is where contributing factor has created so many problems for so many employers across the state that we had to create a better balance with this bill, and that's what we accomplished. Yeah, I mean, in fact, for our listeners, it changed it from the discrimination being a, a contributing factor to being the primary factor, incorrect? I mean, motivating I'm factor. Motivating factor, but yeah. Right. Now, one of the things that I've heard, and these are from Republican lawyers, I have been told that uh, sexual harassment's been in the news nationally, that this law makes it virtually impossible for uh, a person, a woman or a guy, to um, go to court and file case alleging sexual harassment, that they would have to do federal court, that this law makes it virtually impossible to um, uh, launch a sexual harassment case in Missouri. Kind of what's your thoughts about that? Uh, I'm not sure what they're basing that upon. I would have to hear an argument concerning that, but that's not been an issue that I've had any conversation about. The other thing that came about from this bill is there was an announcement that the state of Missouri was going to lose funding from HUD um, because of this legislation. I'm sure you've heard about that. I'm just curious whether um, that came as a surprise and whether it might necessitate a change to the to now the state law next year. When we were presenting the bill to the committee for the first time, we have a fiscal note. Every senator on that committee and anyone that was in that committee hearing seen the fiscal note said it may be up to $1.2 million lost. So that was, there was no secret, there was no hiding that there might be a consideration of lost funds. As the process went through, the number dropped down to 500,000. Uh, as of recently, uh, as of last week, my understanding it may be as low as 180,000 that we may be losing. All right, 180,000 is a good chunk of change. But the, consider the fact is, the reason is that on the HUD level, contributing factor is still being considered for housing. Motivating factor is for employment on the federal level. The contributing factor for housing was determined by a rule which was codified by the courts. With a, a Republican governor, Republican president, there is conversation taking place right now to evaluate HUD standard for discrimination. That could be changed by a rule. To me, if we're, discrimination should be standardized. If, if if it's motivating for 
employment. It should be motivating for housing as well to create that consistency. That's my contention. That's what I'm working on. I want to make sure there's a fair and balanced approach to what uh, uh, discrimination is really about. So segueing to our our last topic, um, you were one of the few Republicans to vote against right to work over the last session. And right to work for our listeners is shorthand that proponents use to describe a, a measure that would bar unions and employers from requiring workers to pay dues as a condition of employment. I've gotten good at explaining this. <laughs> you know, at first when I was trying to explain what right to work was, I would stumble every time. I turned to Joe, say, could you explain it? But I just did. So right now, though, that law is not in effect because labor unions engineered a referendum effort that is going to put that law up for a vote sometime next year. There is currently, I think, an internal discussion about whether the legislature is going to move the date of that vote from November to August or another day. Yeah, only the General Assembly can move a referendum. So right now it's slated for November unless the General Assembly acts. They have to act pretty quickly uh, because of time uh, constraints. So, I mean, do you think it's going to happen, A? B, do you think that people may reconsider and let it just go ahead and be on the November ballot? Well, there's several issues. Uh, I've had a little bit of conversation uh, with some of my colleagues on this particular topic. And right now, the debate, uh, we have to evaluate what is most effective for that issue to come up. If, if it comes up in the general election, does that drive out more voters and therefore uh, has an impact on the Senate race? Uh that has to be taken under consideration. I mean, the general, cons- yeah, I mean, that is that it will, but go, go ahead. But then the second thing we have to consider is if we take it to the primary election, does that create an environment where the opposition or the folks that want to remove right to work uh, have a greater opportunity to fight that particular issue and bring out their voters? So there, there's two uh, issues that we have to look at, which is uh, the better of the two for what we want to see get accomplished. Well, you're a right to work opponent. So right. what would be your preference? You know, I, it's a really tough call. It is opinion. a tough call. <laughs> I, I'm not sure because uh, I, I sincerely uh, would like to see Holly win the Senate. So from that standpoint, uh, uh, I would prefer uh, the, the right to work issue be in the, the primary election. But in the primary election, it's uh, it's more likely to pass, more saying. likely to pass. But so although I, you would want it to pass, I, I would win on both sides in that particular issue. Yes. Now, and Joe <laughs> mentioned this before, but right now, Holly, uh, what we're this talking is about Ms. Missouri Attorney General Josh Holly, who is the best known of the Republican ca- candidates seeking to challenge U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill. Now, this has been kind of a conversation on Twitter, but Holly is not the only candidate in that race. There, There is Austin Peterson, Tony Minetti, and the mysterious Cortland Sykes, which who, who has gotten a lot of press coverage, even though he's only raised $500 yeah, for the Yeah, just the, the last few days because he was uh, helping out Roy Moore back in Alabama. Is there any fear that if Right to Work goes on in August, there may be a concerted effort for Democrats to vote for a non-Holly opponent so that Claire McCaskill has somebody other than Holly? Or is that just not a likely scenario to succeed, given that the non-Holly opponents are going to have significantly less resources? I, those uh, efforts have been attempted in other elections we are aware of, and uh, so it is always a concern. Uh, but I, I want to step back, if you don't mind, sure. just a little bit, because I, I want to make sure the folks understand uh, that, you know, until the most recent 
Lincoln Day's event, Right to Work, was not part of the Republican platform, although some would like to say it was. But uh, growing up in a union household, my dad was a heavy equipment operator, serving my uncles as well. Uh, I fully understand the value of what labor has done for my family and my home and, and my uh, communities. Uh, coming from a district, I'm very fortunate to represent a district that has a lot of union membership. Yeah, a lot Re- of retired union members. Re- well, retired from UAW, a lot right. of commuters that exactly. commuted to the Fenton Chrysler Flint and Plant live in my district, as well as uh, Mississippi Lime, Ameren employees, uh, which that's that's uh, has its own story behind it. <laughs> it's pretty funny and ironic, but continue. <laughs> so, you know, I I, I I take pride in serving my district and my constituency, and the majority of my constituency uh, are touched by the, the labor uh, in a strong way. So uh, fortunately for me, I come from a background that understands the labor uh, from an actual living perspective. But also, the one thing I want to point out is that the, the argument gets confused. There's a difference between shop unions and trade unions. Yes. And so the shop unions is what's really driving this. Uh, the manufacturing plants that we hope to bring into the state if right to work was to, to stay in place. Uh, but Missouri is well balanced. We have companies like 3M, Procter & Gamble, Briggs & Stratton, all non-union shops that are working quite successfully. And then we have our union shops, uh, Anheuser-Busch, uh, Boeing, Boeing, uh, Ameren, doing quite well. So we we have a good balance in Missouri, and I, I just, for the life of me, do not understand the fight other than being involved with the Chamber of Commerce that when they hire these consultants that do these searches, one of the number one things on that top of that list are your right-to-work state. Does that need to be addressed or fixed? I, I think so because I, it should not be a detriment when you're a state like Missouri that has a well-balanced number of companies across the state that are either non-union or union. I know it's perilous to predict elections so far in advance, but Right to Work was on the ballot in the 70s when union membership was a lot higher. And I actually covered it. I was not born yet. <laughs> um, what What's kind of your, your, your preliminary prediction on how this referendum goes? I mean, Organized labor is going to be out in force to repeal right to work. And when they get organized, they can be effective. But I also saw last cycle where they supported a whole bunch of candidates that lost, including Chris Coster. So with that as a backdrop, what do you think ends up happening next year? Well, I think on these particular issues that uh, we've lost a lot of, uh, I would say, let me back up. We have a lot of conservative Democrats in my district, particularly on the social issues. And and so, therefore, labor is going to be the labor issue. And when you have the labor issue, you bring out the uh, trade unions, you bring out the shop unions, you bring out the police, you bring out the fire, you bring out the teachers. You bring out a big coalition on a particular issue. It's not having to deal with social issues. It's not having to deal with any other politics. It's dealing with the right to protect your livelihood is the primary goal. So that coalition will come together that didn't stay together when it came to the election time, particularly on some of these offices that you're talking about. Yeah, because labor, I mean, rank and file, has been divided on these social issues for decades. Right. So, I mean, in fact, I mean, there's a general belief that at least half, if not more, of the rank and file uh, labor members voted for Trump. And there's also anecdotal evidence that a lot of 
union members, even though Greitens was pretty upfront in saying that he would sign right to work, also voted for the governor, which is something that I've never quite understood <laughs> unless they weren't paying attention to what he was saying or they Chris Coster just didn't do an effective job in motivating them. I'm not sure what you've heard on that, but I've heard various things. Uh, it's a conversation, but I cannot say that there was, there's been an answer uh, settled on that particular issue. One final question before we let you go. Um, you ran for a leadership position, I think, back in 2014. We ran right. for pro tem. I'm just uh, curious, after this next election cycle, whether you will seek the pro tem ship again? I would be honored to serve as president pro tem of the Senate. I believe the Senate uh, has uh, such a strong function and a viable part of our state's legislative process, and uh, I would like to continue the legacy of that and and would be honored to serve in that position. For our listeners, uh, that position is actually becoming vacant because Ron Richard is terming out. I believe that there are several people interested in that. I don't think there's an obvious front-runner. So just as there was a not an obvious front runner for the Speaker of the House race, we'll be watching that shadow contest very closely. We want to just thank you again for coming all the way to St. Louis to be on our show. We this really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. I, I enjoy my time here and I appreciate the opportunity. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. I'm not sure if you're on Twitter, but is there any way for your constituents to get a hold of you either on social media or otherwise? Uh, we do have a Facebook page, Romine for Senate, that we gather information. But anyone's more than willing to call my office in Jeff City, 573-751-4008. Karen's a tremendous asset to my office. She'd be happy to take those phone calls. And just also for our listeners, get down to the Senator's District to see some of those state parks. We'd is, love to have you there. It is a wonderful time, and I know that the counties would appreciate your, your hospitality and your money. Thank uh, you. For until next time, so long.